Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with a child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being ju a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered, conceived th these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph and him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Christopher. What a moment in history that we look back on, isn't it? I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles. Uh, everybody open your Bible to John chapter 1. Word? Uh, we will get there, I promise you. Uh, through the course of the message, we will land on John chapter 1. Uh, in 1995, Joan Osborne released a song that quickly became a worldwide hit. It asked a series of questions that seemed to resonate with a broad audience worldwide. The main thrust was simple. What if God was one of us? I think some of you are already beginning to sing. What if God was? Mm -hmm. What if God came down and dwelt among us and even became one of us as humanity and took on our flesh and walked in our shoes? I believe it was an anthem, a crying out. For God to truly understand the plight of us as humanity, this, this hopelessness and the grind, and possibly maybe even a rejection of religion altogether. I mean, maybe Joan Osborne was being ironic or cynical or honestly seeking. But really, the question that she posed is not a what if question at all. God has, in fact, become one of us. He has taken on our flesh and bone and breath and he has dwelt among us. As we unfolded last week through the, the enigmatic opening lines of John's gospel, the word has become flesh. And family, throughout the course of history, it had always been in the heart of God to dwell among his people. In fact, we see that all the way through the Old Testament, starting specifically in the garden at creation. And then throughout the unfolding of the Old Testament, looking now specifically at the chosen people, the people of Israel, as the people of Israel were delivered from the bondage and from the shackles of slavery in Israel, God spoke this wonderful message. In Exodus chapter 29, verse 45, God declared, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. God showed his special and specific pleasure and choice of that nation. 
and delivered them to be set apart, literally a city on a hill where the worship of God would be on display for the world to see that man could approach God through sacrifice and worship and that God would dwell among a people. As Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness, God began to unfold a plan to the people of Israel, some specific areas and ways of assembling a place of worship where man could meet with God and God could dwell among them. It was called the tabernacle. I show you an artist rendition of what the tabernacle looked like. It was a place of offering and sacrifice, but the center of the tabernacle was what was called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of God would be placed in the Holy of Holies and God could be worshipped through the priest and through sacrifices. And so God delivered these plans to the people. And they constructed and they brought about all of the, the utensils and assembled it all roughly in the year 1445 B.C. In fact, we were told in the very first month, the second year, the very first day of that month, Everything was constructed and put together after a year of assembling. Look at Exodus chapter 40, verses 16 through 17. I say look there, look up here. It's provided for you. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. This place of worship. And something incredible happened. Something had never happened before like this. In fact, the scriptures tell, tell us that the priests, after they had cleansed themselves and after the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, God came down in presence and in power and in glory. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And that tent of meeting is where God and man met through sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses, not even Moses, the holiness of Moses, Moses was not even permitted to stay in the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and it tells, the scriptures say, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Twice we are told at the end of chapter 40 that the glory of God dwelled in the tabernacle. I quote here from New Illustrated Bible Commentary, they write this, the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle demonstrated his presence. Whose presence with Israel? God's presence. His significance to them and his awe-inspiring wonder. God was literally dwelling with his people. What had always been intended. And so for the next roughly 500 years, it was at the tabernacle and in the tent of meeting through the offering of sacrificial blood that God met with his people. That was, of course, until King David, roughly 500 years later, purposed in his heart to build for God something greater than a tabernacle, a temple. I provide for you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. The scriptures tell us, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He had a desire, a heart to build for God a temple where the glory of God could dwell. And, and Nathan spent a night in prayer and then came back to King David and said, David, you're not the guy. You're not the one to build the, the temple for God. In fact, God is going to do something very significant for you, David. He's going to build a kingdom through you. 
And through your immediate son Solomon, yes, the temple will be built, but an even greater temple would be constructed in the future. And in through that true temple, the kingdom of God would be unearthed, unearthed and unleashed on planet Earth. And so during David's life, he amassed the materials and plans for there to be this temple constructed. And as he approached the end of his life, he commissioned his son Solomon to build this temple. And in the year 966 BC, Solomon began to build and construct the temple. Seven years later, the temple was finished. And Solomon called all of the people together in worship, and all of the priests and all of the articles of worship and the ark were pulled out of the tent, and they were brought into the temple as it was cleansed through sacrifice. And again, something significant happened. And on the day it was commissioned, the day it was cleansed, it was on the first day of the first month, of the seventh year after it began being constructed to, to coincide with the coronation of the tabernacle. And this is what happened. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, that is, they had placed the ark in the holy of holies, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. And in verse 11, so that the priests could not stand to minister. Just as Moses was driven from the tabernacle, the priests were driven from the temple because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so just as we saw in the tabernacle in Exodus, we now see in the temple the glory of God dwelling in and among his people. The Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. And so this morning as we look back into this, this little nativity, and as we, as we consider and we peer into glimpse through tired and pain gasps, Mary full term, and in the throes of delivery, didn't just bring forth a child into the world. In fact, the scriptures tell us that she brought forth Emmanuel, not only God with us, but God one of us. Jesus, the true tabernacle. Jesus, the true temple. And that is what John is telling us. In John chapter 1, verse 14. Aha, I told you I'd get to John. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. I read to you words from the net notes. The Greek word translated dwelt among us alludes to the Old Testament tabernacle. It's also a throwback to the temple when the Shekinah glory of God, the visible glory of God's presence resided. The author is suggesting that this glory can now be seen in Jesus. The Shekinah glory that once was found in the tabernacle has taken up residence in the person of Christ. And so as we look back at John's gospel, this, this prologue of the first 18 verses, he's not just pointing back to creation and saying, yes, Jesus was present at the very beginning. Yes, he is the co-eternal agent of creation, 
he's also pointing back throughout all of history, pointing to the temple and pointing to the tabernacle and declaring the true temple of God has come. He's saying, just as the glory and presence of God came down and dwelt among the people of Israel, Jesus, the word, has come down and flesh and blood and bone and breath. And he has dwelt among us. And here is the picture of the true temple of God. Mm-mm, not that one. That one. Family, that is the picture of the true tabernacle, the true temple. That is why John then states, and we have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory, the Shekinah glory of God. John, being a firsthand eyewitness of the glory of Christ, he declares, he says, we've seen his glory. And as we saw last week, Jesus peeled back the curtain just a little bit and gave his inner three disciples just a glimpse of his glory during his earthly ministry. And I take us back to a harmony of the, of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just so we too can, can catch a glimpse of the glory of God residing in the true temple, the flesh and bone and breath and blood of Christ. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. It is the Greek word metamorphoso. It means where we get the English word metamorphosize. He was, he was changed in front of them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, white as light as no one on earth could bleach them. And his face shone like the sun, and they saw his glory. And they were rendered prostrate. They fell down before him. Because they're in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. And Jesus is just peeling back and he's just giving them a peek, a glimpse of the glory that he had eternal with the Father. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Just as the cloud filled the tabernacle, just as the cloud filled the temple, the cloud enwraps the top of this mountain. And the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And beheld a glimpse of the glory of Christ, the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. He is the true way to the Father. Jesus himself proclaiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And that's why in John chapter 2, when a group of really irritated priests and frustration and anger came up to him and said, by what authority do you do this? You remember Jesus had entered the temple and he didn't find it full of worship and prayer. He found it full of vendors 
ripping off worshipers, the scandalous and unscrupulous practices that have been developed to take advantage of those attempting to approach God in the temple. Jesus enters in and in righteous anger began to overturn tables and upend unrighteous coffers. In John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? By what authority do you cleanse this temple? And Jesus goes, Oh, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Tear this temple. Destroy this temple. Tear it down, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're looking around, and they're going, What? This is Herod's temple. The grandeur, the stone, the wood, the articles of worship. How could you tear this down and rebuild it in three days? Now, Jesus wasn't speaking about the physical earthly temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. In fact, verse 21 tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus declares, I'll give you a sign. A sign not only to the authority to cleanse the temple, but a sign and a demonstration of how he will cleanse the world of sin. That no longer would we approach God through sacrificial worship, but we would approach God through his sacrifice of himself. Jesus, the greater temple, God and flesh. And what Jesus was declaring that particular day in the temple was not just tear down this body and I will raise it up. He declared, humanity, tear down this temple and I will raise you up. That he is the resurrection and he is the life. That he came to offer himself for the sins of the world. God did become one of us. What if he was? He is. And he was, and his name is Jesus. And it was only later, following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that his disciples got it. In chapter 2 of John's Gospel, verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. They were like, oh yeah. He said he was the temple, the true temple. His body was torn down. We witnessed it. And he is risen. Just like he said. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Oh, the blessings throughout the centuries of those who believe the words that Jesus has spoken. The word that is revealed through the scriptures. And really what we're looking in as we peer into this nativity as Christ and his humanity, he is grabbing a hold of humanity's hand. And Christ in his divinity is grabbing a hold of the Father's hand. And he's bringing us together that we may dwell with God and he may dwell with us and in us. And that we may approach, not through works that we have done, not through our own righteousness, not through our own sacrifice. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the righteous blood shed by Christ on behalf of us as humanity, that we may approach and he may dwell. That is why when we look back in Matthew's gospel, as Crystal so poignantly read, when Joseph was considering divorcing Mary, and he had it in his heart, and why do you think he was wanting to divorce Mary? What was going on in Joseph's mind at the time? Y'all have any ideas? Probably thinking that Mary had been unfaithful, 
And how is this possible? The improbable, the impossible. In chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the darkness of the deep in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary's womb, and in her womb was knit together the fabric and the body, breath and bone and blood and breath. The God-man, the incarnation, incarnate one in her womb. That which is conceived enters from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name. Let's read his name together. For he will save his people from their sin. Jesus, the Word made flesh, came to save us from our sins because, family, we need a Savior. We need one who will grab our hand and grab the Father's hand and bring us together. And so again, we peer back to this little nativity and this, this moment in time in history where God's perfect will and humanity, human history came together in this impossible, improbable, miraculous moment where the Word became flesh and He, he dwelt among us Jesus, our Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, Jesus, our true tabernacle, Jesus, our true temple, the true sacrifice. In fact, the resurrection and the life. And so at Christmas, what we're invited to do is to draw near. Through Christ, we are invited in to the presence of the living God That is why the writer of Hebrews says, come, let us draw near to the throne of grace. And my heart for us as a people during this time, that we would accept that invitation through Christ, that we would draw near and draw into the holy of holies in the presence of the living God and that we would worship. And so with that in mind, I ask that we draw near to do just that. Let us worship together.